You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Thank you, Grace Team, for leading us this morning. Well, if you have a Bible with you, you will make your way to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke. Today, we arrive at chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 today. If you're a guest with us, first of all, we are so glad you're here. What we have been doing as a church for some time now is we have just been making our way through the Gospel according to Luke as our our, our practice here as a church just to take a book of the Bible and to really just dig in, to receive all that we can from each book of the Bible. And today we're in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Churches, I read these words. Let me just remind us. I know that I do this every Sunday, but I don't do it just to be a phrase I throw out. I, I want to remind us what this book is. Every week I say this is God's holy inspired and authoritative word. And, and, and what I mean by that is this is God's holy word. It is not no other book. It is holy. And it is inspired, meaning everything that is written is from the very mouth of God. Which means then it is authoritative. This is not a book that we just simply listen to, get a few thoughts from, take some, leave some. This is a book that governs us. It's authoritative. God is going to speak to us and address us and lead us and care for us today. So Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read through 17. And he, being Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you may enter, stay there. And from there, depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return... The apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a, a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. 
They said, we, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there are about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Imagine that one day you come across a story about a certain man from a peasant family who grew up in a small town. And to everyone's surprise, when he reaches his 30s, he claims to be king of the land. And here is the interesting part. He is the king of the land. And he's not only the king of the land, his kingdom would become the largest, most powerful empire in the world. It would become so great that it would change the course of history. Now imagine this same ruler from this peasant family, from this small town, is like no other earthly king. He has miraculous powers. He can heal people. He has the ability to change people's dire circumstances by just saying a word. And when he speaks, oh man, when he speaks, there is such authority in what he says, it causes people to tremble. Now, you would think that this king would be loved by everyone, but sadly, it's not true. Not everyone loves this king. Some feel threatened by him. Others were jealous of his popularity, and some even questioned his intentions. Many who met him, they liked him for what he did for them, but they, they didn't love him as their king, and they didn't love his kingdom. There were some, however, some who laid aside everything to follow him because they were devoted to him. They were devoted to him and the cause of his kingdom. One of the things that was most surprising about this king is even though he rules the greatest kingdom in the history of the world, he actually lives a very humble life. He travels around from place to place with no home of his own. And he's accompanied not by a vast, great, mighty army, but by a small band of disciples. Now, early on, while reading this story, at times you may wonder, how will this humble teacher, how will he become the leader of the most dominant empire in the entire world? How will he grow his kingdom? Well, one day, you run into a stranger whom you find out has also read the same story that you are reading, but they finished the story. And you haven't finished the story. And before you can tell them, I don't know how it ends, they divulge the surprise 
ending. They tell you exactly what happened, and you are shocked, shocked to discover that this humble king who runs this vast empire planned his own assassination, which will be carried out by his enemies. And then you discover that his death will actually be his greatest moment of victory. His death will make his kingdom grow. But that's not all. This stranger goes on to tell you after only a few days of being in a grave, he rises from the dead. But instead of sitting on an earthly throne, he leaves earth. He leaves earth, but he continues to rule his kingdom. But here's another surprise. He continues to rule his kingdom, but he does so by commissioning his followers to establish and advance his kingdom in his place. You see, the death and resurrection of this king, along with the commissioning of his disciples to carry out his kingdom, that will be what causes his kingdom to be so great, not only will it change history, it will affect eternity. Friends, what I just told you is no religious folklore. It's the surprising story of Christianity. And as we make our way through the gospel of Luke as a congregation, I share that story with you because we, too, must be fully aware of how the story ends. We're far from the end. We're at chapter 9. We're, we're going to chapter 24. We got a ways to go. But we must be fully aware of how the story ends. Actually, be, beginning here in chapter Nine, Luke begins to prepare us in this very chapter for the climatic ending. Think of chapter 9 as an important part of this entire gospel. This chapter is critical to this gospel. It's going to develop the plot and prepare us for the climactic ending. You see, here in Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out the twelve. They are given authority to carry out his mission and his ministry on their own. And the reason Jesus sends them out is to prepare him for his departure. That's what's now taking place in chapter 9. This is a critical chapter. At this point, we know what the disciples don't know. Next week, Jesus is going to drop a bombshell and tell them, once they confess who he is, you know what's going to happen to me, don't you? But at this point, he sends them out, but they have no idea he has sent them out because he is preparing them for his departure. You see, in chapter 9, Jesus will reveal to us that he will die at the hands of his enemies. But we're not to panic. No, we're not to panic because all of this is happening according to plan. And once Jesus departs, his disciples will continue to fulfill his kingdom work in his place. Now that means, if that's what's happening in this chapter, 
That means we must read the details of chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. We must read the details recorded in these verses in light of two things. In light of Jesus' departure, and in light of the fact that he is commissioning the church to carry out his kingdom work. So with those two things now in mind, let's go back and think, okay, what, what is going on in this passage? So look again with me at verses 1 through 6. Let me read verses 1 through 2 again. It says, He being Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now before we hear Jesus address His disciples, we, we hear Luke as the narrator inform us that Jesus called the twelve together And at this time, when he calls them together, he gives them power and authority. A power and authority they didn't have before. And it's not a power and authority that that they can have on their own to do any of these things apart from his commissioning. He is basically giving them the ability to heal diseased bodies and to deliver tormented souls. It's exactly what he's been doing. And now he says, hey guys, come, come together. You've seen me do a lot of things. I said you're out to do them now. We'll be back here at a certain time. So that's what Luke tells us happens. But notice this, the primary focus, the primary focus of the apostles' ministry consisted of proclaiming the message of the kingdom of Christ. And that shouldn't surprise us because what we discovered early on in Luke's gospel is that was the primary focus of, of Jesus' ministry. It wasn't just healing It was the preaching of a message of good news. Now look at verses 3 and 4. At this point, we hear Jesus speak. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. Think about what Jesus just told his disciples. Why did Jesus tell these 12 to take nothing for their journey? I wonder if the reason he said that is he wants them to trust him. In the same way you're going to have to trust me to heal people, in the same way, guys, you're going to have to trust me that you're going to be able to have authority and power to do all the things I'm calling you to do. I I need you to trust me that I will provide for you as you carry out the mission. But notice this. Notice the means Jesus uses to provide for his disciples. Are you you aware this is just a, a moment, just to have a little... Side conversation, a little parenthesis. Are you aware that though God does things in powerful ways for us every day, He he often carries out His powerful acts through ordinary means? God is going to provide for these disciples. They're going to take nothing with them, but God's going to provide for them. And how's He going to do it? Verse 4, through the hospitality and generosity of other saints. You're to go, take nothing with you. I'm going to provide for you. How? 
You're going to find people in the villages you're going. They're going to take you in. They'll provide everything you need. Then why tell them, stay in one place? Why say, whatever house you start out with, don't go to another house. Why, why tell them that? What's, what's behind that whole thought? What's wrong with moving on? I wonder if the reason Jesus told them this is so that it would be apparent to all what their intentions were. They're not staying at one house and saying, oh, they've got a pool. They've got a softer bed. And their intentions could be looked at as if, are you, are you really in this for the right reasons? And I think this teaches us something that it's always important to emphasize, especially in our culture, in our day and age, both here in the United States and throughout the world as we talk to our missionary brothers and sisters like Jacob and Carol Lee. Let me just say a, a brief word about the prosperity gospel that is running rampant in our culture. Because I think this, this passage addresses this. If you don't know what the prosperity gospel is, it's this message that sadly is all over, all over just running throughout our American culture. It is making its way into Latin America and Africa. And it's basically this teaching, if you believe in Jesus, you will be healthy, wealthy, and have everything work for you. Friends, that's false. It's unbiblical. It's nowhere found in the ministry of Jesus. Actually, everything we're reading about today speaks opposite of all that teaching. It's a false gospel. And it, not only is it false, it misrepresents the mission of Jesus and his disciples. And I believe it brings dishonor to the person and work of Jesus. Jesus did not come to earth to live in luxury. So when we act like we need luxury to follow Jesus, we look nothing like the Savior. And when he told his disciples, hey, stay where you are. I'm going to provide for you, but be okay with whatever provisions you have. We should take our cue from, from that. Now, let's go back to verses 5 and 6. Look what Jesus says, or Luke informs us, happens next. And wherever they do not receive you, this is Jesus speaking, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And then Luke tells us that they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Jesus informed his disciples before sending them out. Get this. Before sending them out, he says, not everyone will welcome you or your message. Just be prepared. I'm going to send you out. You're going to knock on certain doors. They're going to say, come on in, brother. Others... They want nothing to do with everything you're going to say. They're going to reject you. They're going to reject your message. And yet, he calls them to be faithful and leave the results to God. That's what you see here. That's all that Jesus is saying to his disciples. Boys, go into these towns. Say what you're supposed to say. Trust God with the rest. 
Some are going to like it. Some are going to receive it. Others are going to try to run you out of town like they try to run me off a cliff. Just shake off the dust from your feet, boys. <laughs> Move on. Be faithful. Be faithful. Now, if, if we recall back in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, in that chapter we met three men named Peter, James, and John who would eventually become part of these, this circle of 12 who are being sent out by Jesus. And here's the reason I take us back to that story. Do you remember in that story when Jesus called these three men, Peter, James, and John, do you remember what he said to them? At that time, they were fishermen. And he said to them, guys, you're not going to be casting your nets for fish anymore. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Guess what? That promise was just fulfilled here in verses 1 through 6. They are now being fishers of men. Now, notice what happens once they return from their mission. We're actually going to skip to verses 10 through 17. We're going to come back to verses 7 through 9. But it, 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 did you notice this when I was reading it? This 7 through 9 seems like an interruption. You could take that passage out and put the other two together and they fit perfectly. We're going to come back to why did Luke insert these, these comments about Herod in a moment. But let's, let's see what happens once the disciples return from their mission. Well, we're informed by Luke that once the 12 returned from their mission, Jesus took them away to a desolate place like always, it didn't take long for the crowds to find out where Jesus was, and they just began to swarm this desolate place. And before long, there is a multitude of people pursuing Jesus. What does Jesus do? We're told at the end of verse 11, He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So Jesus, all these people show up, and instead of sending them away, He feeds them with spiritual food. He gives them what they need to hear. And then verse 12, we're told that the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to, to Him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and the countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we're here in a desolate place. This was a reasonable observation by the, the disciples. We should not chide them at all at this point. They're, it's actually quite observant of them that they see the needs of these people. And they said, Jesus, I, I, don't, I don't know what your plan is. I don't know. You know, preachers never pay attention to the clock like they ought to. You've gone a long time. Uh, you realize how late it is. You realize we're out in the middle of nowhere. There's no place to stay. There's no place to eat. Should we just send the people away? Jesus surprises them by saying, you give them something to eat. Now, why did he say that? I think he's preparing them for his departure. They don't know it. But he's saying to them, guys, I'm not going to be here for long. And what are you going to do when the masses keep coming and you keep preaching in my name? 
Well, we turn to Luke's sequel in the book of Acts, and guess what? We see the, God using the disciples to meet needs. Jesus is preparing them for his departure. So then he tells them what to do. Or they say, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Once he says, hey, you feed them. Well, Jesus, we have one small problem here. <laughs> this is all we have. And Jesus didn't say, oh, well, that's a problem. We'll have everybody sit down, sit down in groups of 50. He said, bring, bring what you have. And we come to verse 16. And verse 16 is just loaded with meaning and significance. We're actually going to come back to it at the, at the end. But listen to what Luke tells us happened. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And then I love these words from verse 17. And they all ate and were satisfied. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples back in chapter 6 when he was preaching what we call the greatest sermon ever preached? He said in chapter 6, verse 21, Blessed are those who are hungry, for they shall be satisfied. Here's a hungry crowd who's come out to this desolate place. And Jesus said, I keep my word. I fed you and you're satisfied. But that's not all we're told. Jesus not only fed the multitude with this meager, meager offering of fish and bread, we're informed by Luke that when it all said and done, and listen, it just says 5,000 men. So there could have been over 10,000 people there. Not only did Jesus feed them all, but there are 12 baskets remaining. And I don't, I, I don't think that's coincidental. I think it's significant. It reminds everyone there that Jesus provides for His people in a desolate place the same way God provided for Israel in the wilderness. You remember how God provided for the 12 tribes? Jesus says, here's 12 baskets. They say, here we are in a desolate place and I'm doing the same thing. Which means we, we must read this miracle or look at this miracle as if it is revealing the identity of Jesus. He is not just any man. Look what he's able to do. He's doing what God did. Now think carefully what just occurred at this event. Think about what just happened. Jesus, who's God in the flesh, look what he doesn't do. What, what do all other gods do? Go anywhere else in the world where there is temples and shrines. What do you do if you're going to come before that God? You bring an offering. Here is God in the flesh, and no one's bringing Him anything. He's providing for His people. They're not giving Him anything. He's providing for them all that they need, both spiritually and physically. In other words... He didn't use his position of authority for his personal benefit, but for the good of those he came to serve. 
He's not demanding anything of them. He's providing for them and doing it richly. And His disciples, who've now been given much authority, well, they're to follow in His steps. Jesus says, listen, I I could ask a lot from everyone, but I'm not going to ask. I'm going to give. If you're my disciples, you're going to follow in the same path. Now that brings us back to these three verses that Luke inserts here. And it should leave us scratching our head. Why, why did he insert these remarks about Herod? And here's what you need to know. The other gospel writers don't insert this comment. Now anytime a, a gospel writer, remember there are four gospels, and many of the stories they tell are, are found in all four gospels. But here's one that we find in Matthew and Mark, but they leave out this comment. N- notice that, that this comment is not only inserted here and not in other places, but it's stuck in between. It almost kind of seems like it's interrupting. Why is that? Why did Luke insert this remark about Herod, and why did he put it between these two stories? We'll, we'll look again at verses 7 and 8. We're going to discover why I believe Luke intentionally put this here. He says, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. So all of a sudden we hear about this man named Herod, the Tetrarch, the ruler of this region. This is not the first time we heard about this guy. Last time we heard about him was in regards to John. John, who he's hearing, may have been raised from the dead. Back in chapter 3, we read these words in verses 18 through 21. Luke tells us, With many other exhortations, he being John, preached the good news to people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So the last time we heard about Herod the Tetrarch in relation to John, we hear that John is faithfully preaching the gospel, and as he does that, he's calling people to repentance, and John wasn't one to back down just because you happen to be powerful. He says to Herod in preaching his message, brother, you are breaking God's commandments. And I would be unfaithful if I didn't call you to repentance. And let's start with the fact you're in an adulterous relationship with your brother's wife. Instead of repenting, he says, I'm going to shut that man up. He throws him in prison. And guess what we find out in verse 9? He took off his head. I can make that stop takes off his head. Now, we're told by Luke here in these three verses that as the message about Jesus was being proclaimed by the twelve, the the word gets out to Herod about this man named Jesus. And it's apparent from the way Luke talks about it that Herod was confused about who this Jesus was. He's hearing rumors. I I think it's John. He's come back from the dead. 
Some are saying, no, it's not John. It's, 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 it's the prophet Elijah, and he's visiting his people. Others say, I don't think it's John or Elijah, but it's definitely an Old Testament prophet who's arisen. Well, whoever this guy is, Herod wants to see Jesus for himself. He says, I want to see this guy. And here's what we must be aware of. He doesn't see him until chapter 23, verse 8. And once he sees him, it's because the Jews have brought Jesus before Herod to say, would you sign off on the death certificate? We want to kill this guy. Are you okay with that? So pay careful attention to what we just read. Because when we pay careful attention to the words that are recorded in these three verses... And if we think about the role Herod will play later in the crucifixion of Jesus, all of a sudden we should think, oh, I see what Luke's doing. I see what Luke's doing. When we pay attention to the wording and, and to who Herod is, we begin to see the shadow of the cross looming large over this passage. Do you see it? Luke didn't just insert this comment because he was telling us the story and before he began or before he ended, he had one of those moments of interruption. He said, oh yeah, and let me tell you about Herod. It's almost as if he, knowing where he's going to go in the rest of chapter 9, says, let, let me give you some foreshadowing. Let me tell you about some other things. See, the shadow of the cross looms large over this passage, but get this, so does the hope of the resurrection. Do you see it? First of all, think about how we already see foreshadowing of the cross. Herod killed John. Why do we think he's going to treat Jesus any different when he finally sees him? And then we see the hope of the resurrection because did you pick up on the undertones about people rising from the dead? Guess what? No one was doing in that conversation. No one was saying, people don't rise from the dead. Because in the Jewish understanding, people were going to be raised from the dead. The question was, well, who is it? Is it John? Is it Elijah? Is it, is it a prophet? See, we, uh, we already have some incredible foreshadowing take, taking place. And when we pay attention to the foreshadowing, along with the placement of this story, it, 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 it illustrates to us how the death and departure of Jesus must be front and center as we read this story. Can't read this story apart from the death and departure of Jesus. So let's step back and think about how does the shadow of the cross and the hope of the resurrection, how does it reveal something significant in this passage? Well, think back to the last few weeks as we've been on this journey through Luke's gospel and we arrived at chapter 8 and here's what we've seen. If you remember... We came to a story about Jesus with his disciples on a boat. A great storm comes and Jesus does what? He has authority over nature. So the first thing we see about Jesus, he has authority over nature. Very next story, he meets this man 
who is completely overtaken by the demonic. Jesus frees him. And it shows us Jesus not only has authority over nature, he has authority over the spiritual world, over the devil, and over all darkness. And you know what the next story was that Pastor Odom preached from? This woman who had a disease that no one else could cure. Jesus cured. And then there was the ruler of the synagogue who had lost his daughter. She had died, and guess what Jesus did? He brought her back to life. Do you see what's happening? Jesus has authority over nature, over the spiritual world, over disease, and over death. And then we come to this passage and we see that He even has the ability to provide for us physically even when our circumstances say otherwise. But the greatest need, the greatest need that we have is being already revealed in this passage. The greatest need that Jesus has the ability to meet is to atone for our sins. He has the ability to atone for our sins. See, Jesus paid the price for our sins. And if we place our faith in him and we repent of our sins, we are forgiven and reconciled to God. That's what we see in this passage. This long string of stories Luke's been putting together to show us the greatness of Jesus. And today, we're beginning to see the greatest attribute of Jesus of all. That He is going to die in our place for our sins. So how do we respond to this message? What do we do with this passage? It obviously shows us many wonderful things about Christ. What, what do we do? Well, I, I think going back, this is where I want to, in going back to verse 16, I think there's something strategic here Luke is doing that we were to pick up on. It says in verse 16 that he took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Now, why do I point that out? Because that fourfold combination of words, he took bread, blessed, broke, and gave, it appears two other places in Luke's gospel, that exact same terminology. He took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it. And every time it occurs, both here and in chapter 22 and in chapter 24, each time it says Jesus did that, he's not only giving the disciples bread to eat, he's giving them a far greater gift, the gift of revelation. And what is he revealing? That he is the crucified and risen Savior. The next time Jesus will take the bread, break it, or bless it, break it, and give it, is in chapter 22 on the night when he took of, when he took the Last Supper with His disciples, and He turned it in to what we call the Last Supper, communion. 
And in chapter 22, verse 19, it says this, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, Jesus was giving them far something far greater than just bread to eat. He was revealing to him his divine purpose. I came to die. But there's one other place where he does that. It's at the very end of Luke's gospel, chapter 24. Do you remember Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he meets these two men along the road to Emmaus. They have no idea who he is. And not only do they not know who he is, they're discouraged because they've heard all about this Jesus and they were just had all their hopes in him and they don't understand how he could die. And now they hear his tomb is empty and they're just distraught. And Jesus walks along with them and begins to open up all of the scriptures to them, showing them that it was to point to his death and resurrection. All of the Old Testament, all of the scriptures were given to point to, to, to the fact that he was going to suffer. And they still didn't get it until we arrive in chapter 24, verse 30. He went to their house, and when he was at the table with them, it says he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Then we're told, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Do you see how significant this little four-fold statement is, every time it's happening, starting here in chapter 9, Jesus is doing more than just giving bread. Jesus is giving them the gift of revelation. You realize I'm the bread of life, and I'm going to be broken on your behalf. So what do we do with this? Well, we must grasp As we make our way through this book, we must grasp the purpose of Christ's death and resurrection. Herod asked, who is this? Next week, Jesus is going to flat out, point blank, ask his disciples, who am I? Guess what? No one can answer that question unless they understand why he came and that he died. You can see all the miracles. You can hear all the teaching. You can watch me raise people from the dead. But you will not understand who I am apart from my death and resurrection. Which means, brothers and sisters, as we make our way through Luke's gospel, we must never lose sight of how the story ends. We must never lose sight of the fact that Jesus came to die in our place. I I agree with author David Pryor when he says that we never move on from the cross, but only in a more profound understanding of the cross. Listen, as a Christian, the longer you are a Christian, you never move on from the cross. The cross wasn't something that got us saved. Now we move on to bigger and better things. We never move on from the cross. We move into a greater and deeper understanding of the cross. So, If that's true, and I believe it is, here's my question for us all. Are we growing in our understanding of the cross? Are you growing in your understanding of the cross? I don't mean do you just acknowledge 
that there is the cross and you're grateful that the cross paid for your sins, are you growing? Are you growing in your understanding of the cross? Until we better understand Christ and Him crucified, we, we will not have a full, deeper knowledge of Jesus. If we want to know who Jesus is, the more we understand the cross, the more we understand who He is. Next week, we're going to come back as then Jesus just flat out asks His disciples this question. A lot of rumors going around, who I am, who do you say that I am? They're going to confess it. And then Jesus is going to let them know, good, you're right. Now I need to tell you something else. And he's going to connect his identity to the cross. Those two can never be separated. Let me give you a practical, a practical recommendation as I close. If you have never read this little book called The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney, I know we have some copies out there in our bookstore. You can grab a copy. I think they're $5.00 way cheaper here than you can buy on Amazon. This book has had such a profound impact on my life, and CJ is one of the founding fathers of our family of churches, and this, this book has, has not only impacted many of us, it, is, it has impacted so much of our family of churches. So if you want to say, okay, well, Josh, great, I want to grow my understanding of the cross so I can better know Jesus, well, here's a good resource. Read this book, understand this book, celebrate and absorb this wonderful truth about Jesus and Him crucified. And next week, we will return and we will see more of Christ as He is revealed in the pages of Scripture. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. I pray now that You would grant us the ability to take in what we've just heard, to take it into our hearts and not just with our ears, and that we would respond appropriately. And that response may be different for many of us, for, for different people in the room, but may we respond to the message. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. May we May we seek to know you more. And Lord, thank you. Thank you. For dying in our place for our sin. May those who are here that have never responded to that, may they seek to understand more why your death was the only way they could be forgiven. For all of us who have responded and have received the free and wonderful gift of salvation in Christ, may we grow in our understanding of the cross. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Now as we leave here and we go into our week, may everything we've heard, may it inform how we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.